Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group. Thanks again for all of you guys who are tuning in. Uh, for those of you guys who are tuning in for the first time, we actually started this group back in mid to early 2020 in response to COVID. And ever since then, we've just been inviting speakers from all across the country to discuss a variety of different topics to pertain to commercial real estate. And today we have a phenomenal guest. Uh, I'm actually really excited to talk about this. Uh, you know, I, I focus primarily on the retail space here in Louisville. Uh, Kentucky and and Alex has been in the space and really operating not only just in retail. I mean, you guys have products in the industrial space, office, but you know, I, I've I've looked at your guys' portfolio and you guys do have a heavy presence in the retail sector. So I'm really excited to kind of dive in and learn a little bit more about your background and then maybe some of your insights regarding the evolution of retail real estate as well. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, absolutely. So one thing we typically like to do when we first get started is we like to learn a little bit more about the person that, that's across the table from us. So if you don't mind kind of sharing your backstory, I think that'd be awesome. Sure. Um, so I started Capstone Advisors uh, 27 years ago, and the company's gone through um, a number of different evolutions over the years. But during the entire 27 years, we the very first asset class that we bought was retail. Uh, we've done all sorts of other stuff. As you mentioned, we've we've invested in office and industrial. Uh, we've done a lot of land development, land entitlement, home building investments. Um, so it's a pretty diversified platform. And we've invested, I think, in 14 different states. Um, so, you know, from California to Florida to, you know, everything in between Colorado. Right now, our portfolio is primarily located in Southern California is the big footprint of ours. And then we have a, a, a decent sized footprint in the uh, in Arizona and Phoenix specifically. And then the next footprint of ours is over in Virginia. Um, and then we have some scattered properties in other locations. But um, we're predominantly, uh, most of the portfolio though is predominantly multi-tenant retail. And we're we're a private company and very entrepreneur. So it, entrepreneurial, and we've done uh, we do a little bit of, of ground up development. We do a lot of entitlement, but we do we do a little bit of ground up development. Um, and the retail that we typically buy, uh, we really love to buy stuff that uh, is sort of in the value add area that we can buy it and then improve it. Um, we tend not to sell stuff very frequently. So once we fix it, we tend to put in the portfolio and keep it. Um, but we'll also buy sort of good, solid core plus uh, property as well. Definitely. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I I was able to go through your portfolio a little bit to kind of see what product you guys have. And you're right, you have product in Southern California, Arizona. I even saw that you guys have a uh, land in Costa Rica as well, yeah. which is kind of interesting. I'm assuming, are you guys wanting to do like a hospitality development yeah. at that area? Yeah, that'll be that. That's a hotel and residential uh, big big project down there. That's awesome. Yeah, and and yeah, it just goes to show that you can obviously you operate you can operate in a variety of different environments outside of just your local regional area. So that, that's that's awesome. One thing I'm curious about is what made you decide to get into the commercial space to begin with. Is this something that you've kind of always aspired to, or is this something that you know just out of you you just kind of fumbled into? Yeah. So you know when I started. Um, my career, I, I'm when I started my career in 1991, effectively uh, in real estate. That was the that was the start of the savings loan meltdown, industry meltdown. And um, so, you know, when I first got out of 
out of graduate school, I spent three years doing bankruptcies and workouts and restructurings and big portfolio sales uh, in the savings and loan industry. Um, so I knew I wanted to go into real estate. I just didn't know where. Um, and that's sort of where all the action was when I got out of got out of school. And it was a great, I tell people it's a great, it was a great place to start and a great time to start is in a downturn. So anybody that's like just getting into the industry right now and things were a little little wonky, it's I think it's really good to see um uh to see a little bit of distress in the market or a lot of distress when you're starting your career to really start to understand that asset values can go up and they can go down as well. Um, anyways, I did that for a while. Then I traded mortgages for a bit of time after that. And um, then I was just sort of, you know, in, and then in 1990, end of 1996 is when I started my company. Um, you know, I was sort of looking at the real estate space sort of in a most broad perspective. Um, everything from, you know, continuing to trade mortgages to um, portfolio deals, trying to figure out where is the action. And at that point of the cycle, it was really that there was uh, a lot of real estate that had been in uh, hands of portfolio buyers or owners that hadn't really been optimizing the real estate or the, or the real estate had been capital starred for a long period of time. There was great new liquidity in the marketplace. And you know, so made the determination. The best at point entry point at that time was just to go buy the real property, and then uh, you know, and then under a strategy of buy it, fix it, and sell it. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to be able to team up with a big institutional capital platform and uh, go out and start pretty aggressively buying uh, broken property all over the United States, and assembled a team of people to, to do that uh, here at the company and have been an owner operator developer ever since. You know, we, we have floated around different, different aspects of the market. You know, so today we're pr predominantly the owner operator, you know, but we, we've been through periods where we were primarily equity partners uh, to other, uh, other operators and developers. And we've invested in billions of dollars worth of home building ventures um, in the Western United States. And like I said, we have a fairly active land portfolio, but sort of the core ongoing operation of the company that will always be there is our multi-tenant commercial real estate portfolio. Uh, that's sort of our anchor uh, that gives our company stability and that's predominantly retail. Definitely. No, for sure. And so, you know, you, you described, you know, the, 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 the transition from your, 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 your work in the early nineties to starting your own company in 96. There's, there's definitely people that are listening to the call that are at that inflection point in their career. They've been, you know, doing this for maybe a few years, five, six, seven years, and they've built up a good book of business. And now they feel a little more comfortable with maybe starting their own thing and, and establishing themselves in, in a, you know, their own type of, uh, you know, company. I'm kind of curious, what were some of the early struggles that you faced on that, on, on the, the establishment of that corporation? And then ultimately, how did you traverse those, those early years? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was very, very fortunate that I, you know, through my prior work experience, I had established really good capital relationships. Um, so, so I think what was one of the hardest things for people to establish in the beginning is a capital relationship. And I, I had that in place by the time I, 
uh, went off on my own. So for me at the time, the hardest thing was just getting credibility, right, into the marketplace that, that um, you know, I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm a very much, was an anomaly at the time. I, I never worked for a company that owned real estate. I didn't have any asset management or property management or leasing. I had no direct ownership experience in commercial real estate. Everything that I had done was was either you know in in, in mortgage trading or was in the sort of the more consulting portfolio type work that uh, that I had done. So, so the biggest thing that I had to overcome was just getting people to to transact with me and take me seriously for my first transaction. But um, you know, and then sort of building that credibility. So literally this is, you know, back in the day of Rolodexes, I was calling, you know, investment sales brokers and I'm telling them I'm looking to buy something. And, and I was met with, you know, understandably so, some amount of skepticism of, yeah, I mean, you know, like, who are you? Like, what? And, and, and so I remember very distinctly, like I get my first transaction done. We, you know, this is kind of, kind of like early, almost like pre-internet days, you know, like I, I would mail out announcement cards to my, to all the investment sales brokers that, that were in our database to announce that we'd closed a transaction, that we would close another transaction, send out another announcement that we close another deal. And it was just that flywheel of, of repeatedly showing that we could close transactions and work, work closing transactions that changed the mindset. And I remember you know, there's one investment sales broker that had been, you know, pretty, you know, doubtful in the beginning of my discussions. I remember this one day when he called me up and he said, my business plan this year is to close a deal with you. And I was like, great. Now, like we have established this credibility. So, um, and then, you know, and then building a team of people around it, you know, when I started, I was, you know, I was 33 years old and, um, and I had to I had to put a team of people that actually were the you know nuts and bolts real estate operators and experts on it because it I just had a basically a theoretical understanding of it at that point. Um, but uh, yeah, we were we were able to do that and buy quite a bit of real estate and kind of all worked out. It's awesome, yeah. And I I love the idea like you had mentioned about you know creating credibility or at least showcasing to the marketplace that you do have the credibility to be able to execute because you know if you're i would imagine that for the investment sales brokers on the call like they get calls all the time from people that are looking for opportunities and you know they probably want to focus their attention on those that can execute and ones that they know that if they put an opportunity in front of them they either provide feedback as to why it's not going to work but also if they decide to move forward with that group that they're able to get to the closing table so yeah it's super important that you take care of the investment sales professionals that you work with. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you know, you're, you, you, you don't, you know, we're very thoughtful. We don't, we don't want to engage in, in any transaction that we don't have a very high probability and likelihood that we're actually going to close that deal, like really high. By mm -hmm. the time we put an offer on something, we vetted it very extensively. We know we got, you know, we have our capital, we understand the market. We're going to go ahead and, and transact on this, assuming that nothing radical doesn't, show up in due diligence because not only is it, you know, time and effort and money on our part, but it's also like, we understand like we're putting the investment sales broker at risk, right? If they, if they give, you know, go to their client and, you know, suggest that we get the nod on the acquisition and then we 
act you know arbitrary and don't close on it. I mean that we're putting their relationship with their client at risk. So it's super important that as a buyer that you very much protect your reputation and on on the buy side, and that you you do what you say you're going to do. That's phenomenal advice. I'm sure there's a lot of people who can take that away as far as you know insights pertaining to this podcast. But one thing I'm curious about, and, and obviously one of the cool things we like to do with these these conversations is we like to focus on a particular subject each time we host a guest. And today we wanted to focus on the evolution of retail real estate because I find retail fascinating. It's just it's just such a constantly evolving uh, you know in industry and and you know obviously there's different types of retail that that people operate in and every, everything like that but one thing I'm kind of curious about is when you first started in the business back in 96 you know what type of product were you guys targeting and why were you guys targeting that and, and how has that evolved since then yeah so when we started there was you know it, it was a different very different market than there has been in the last in, in, in a lot of years. What there was, there was a tremendous amount of distressed assets that were out in the marketplace that were just broken assets that were broken because of capital, lack of availability of capital, right? So there was there was a fair amount of pretty decent retail uh, 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 or, or, or real estate assets total that just had been in the hands of, of capital constrained owners. So, you know, so the, the trick was, okay, finding the asset and then understanding, okay, this thing's broken, it's got a lot of vacancy. Is it broken because there's something fundamentally wrong with it? You know, is it the wrong, is it out positioned? Is it got, you know, a bunch of obsolescence? Is it bad layout, whatever, right? What's, and, or is it broken because it hasn't been properly managed? Um, uh, and you know, it needs it needs you know new capital to go into it. It needs a refresh. Um, you know, at that time, you could find assets that just you know prior owners couldn't put tenant improvement money out, right? So if you could put reasonable tenant improvement money out and actually pay the leasing brokers a commission and not jerk them around, you could you could get some leasing. And we were also at that point the the economy was improving, coming out of a pretty tough period of time. So. Um, you know, versus, you know, over the last number of years where, you know, really, you know, capital availability hasn't been an issue, right? It's been, you know, there's been so much more money into the into the markets, uh, you know, forgetting about the last 18 months, but before that, you know, there have been no shortage of capital into the market, right? So, you know, finding opportunity was a sort of a different animal. Definitely. No, I couldn't agree more. And, and as far as the product itself, has that shifted as far as what you guys have been targeting? Um, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know how, you know, the, the you see a difference between, you know, 1996 and, and today, because I mean, I feel like the retail is, has definitely been evolving ever since, you know, yeah. the advent of, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, for sure. Like, right. Like we have, we try to mitigate, um, Big box risk as much as possible. Um, you know the the. You know, I remember in in two thousand. You know, really vividly thinking about what this online sales phenomenon was going to do to retail. You know, what is this Amazon thing, and what what impacts it's going to have to to retail, and you know, and it 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 became pretty clear that you know that online. Um, 
uh, online presence was going to have pretty significant impact to retail, but not necessarily all retail. And I think for a long period of time, everybody sort of started to, you know, redline all retail and say retail's bad. It's all going to get go online, and we should avoid it. And you know, for um, and I think I think that whole uh, mindset has definitely changed. I think I tell people the best thing that's happened to retail's reputation was sort of its performance in the pandemic, you know, for the retail that we own, right? I, you know, we own open air, grocery anchored primarily, you know, and our, our tenants are, you know, grocery, they're hair salons, they're gyms, they're the chiropractor, they're the dentist, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're all necessity-based retail. They're all stuff you can't get online, right? I tell people everything you're wearing, you're probably not buying at one of our centers, right? But you go to our centers every day and that can't be replaced by, you know, an online uh, service provider. So there, there was this period of time though that was like pretty attractive period of time to be buying retail where most institutional capital was just like saying, forget retail, we're afraid of all retail because they've been you know, tagged on, on enclosed malls or big power centers that had been you know, disrupted by online sales. And, and we had shied away from that you know, decades ago and said that we're not gonna buy that type of asset class. We're gonna buy the stuff that uh, has lower releasing cost and you know, much easier to plug in new tenants and we're, we're gonna focus on that stuff we feel is more durable. Definitely. No, that's, that's amazing. And, and, and I've noticed that in my brokerage business where you have like the neighborhood centers that are performing extremely well. I mean, you know, like you said, having the the dentist or chiropractor or nail salon bakeries, you know, that you see a lot more, you know, restaurants historically, you had a large footprint, maybe, you know, you see the, the chilies and some of these larger and entities like the three, 5,000 square foot footprints, those are beginning to shrink and you're starting to yes. see them come yeah. into to strip centers. And, and, and obviously you can't replace that. Those are things you cannot replace. And, and as you mentioned during COVID, I mean, the performance of retail surprisingly was, was very strong compared to some other property types, obviously industrial went through the roof. And I mean, it's very difficult to compete with something like that, but it hold, held its own very well uh, com considering, you know, what you would think would have impacted retail to a sizable amount. Yeah, yeah. Our our portfolio, like our occupancy is as high as it's ever been or higher. Our our rents have trended up, you know, and and, all, and and frankly, you know, all that stimulus money that got dumped into the economy is, you know, it's still running around, right? And people are shopping with it, right? And it's migrated from when everybody was locked home at home, you know, uh buying Peloton bikes, right? Now it's migrated into service, right? So it's really helping our tenants that because it's it's going through and everybody's everybody's out shopping. So that that continues to that all that retail continues to perform really well. Yeah, and and you had even alluded to it a little bit is the the retailization of of even medical like medical offices moving into some of these strip centers like historically that that necessarily wasn't as common of an occurrence but nowadays like you see your optometrist is in a strip center you see a, a physical therapist you start seeing some other medical uses that can move in as well so again and all these cannot be replicated from an online medium so it's it's yeah. very interesting 
Yeah, and you know, in retails, I mean, it is a bit of a tricky asset class to run, right? I mean, it it, mm-hmm. it has its own. You've, you've got to be very thoughtful when you're a retail owner about who you're putting in your center, and really making sure that they're they're going to add some additional value to the surrounding neighbors and be, mm-hmm. you know, so you can't just like slam anybody into these retail centers. In fact, you can really harm yourself by putting the wrong tenants in. It can be very detrimental. Um, uh, to a center. So we have a pretty high criteria level of like who we're going to let into the center. You know, we're very focused on, you know, we want all the communities where we operate to be happy that our center is in their community. They see it as a positive attribute of their community. And, you know, then the other thing that we want is we, nobody wants to see those tenants be successful more than we want them to be successful, right? So we have a very vested interest that we put tenants in there that are going to perform well and are given the tools that they need to be successful. And if they're successful, they're successful because they're serving the their their clients, the local community. Um, so we do, we do spend a lot of time talking about, is this the right tenant for this center? And what else are they going to bring um, uh, to the tenants and, and to the community? Um, so... And, you know, and, and, and then the other thing that we do, which is um, maybe a little bit different, you know, as a landlord and, and maybe unique to the asset class is, you know, we are obviously signing leases with tenants and, you know, we'd like, you know, we do like longer term leases, but if we get a tenant in and we're up, you know, we got a good economy going and we've got a tenant that's struggling and they're having trouble paying rent, you know, we don't, you know, we're, we're pretty we're pretty quick to go to them and say, hey, listen, like, you know, one, let's see if we can do something that, you know, let's talk about your business and how it's going. And, you know, is there some additional resources we can bring to you? Or, you know, what are you doing for advertising? What are you doing? You know, like, we'll, we'll actually meet with them and, and, and try to talk through the business with them. But if it's clear that, hey, this is just a concept that's not going to work or an ownership that's not really going to be able to, to make this thing go, we're we're pretty open to talking to them about hey let's let's get an agreement in place and give us the right to go out and find a replacement for your space and let you out of this lease when we can you know let's let, let us go find a replacement for you because my take is if you're not successful in a good market you know like you're for sure blowing up in a bad market right so mm-hmm. you know the good market is the time to replace your weak tenants so that when you do go into a tougher economic period of time, you've got the best tenants possible in your portfolio. And if you really think about, you know, what we all just went through with COVID, right? I mean, COVID was a pretty big shakeup period. I mean, it was a very stressful period of time when everybody was locked down. And, you know, what I, the way I sort of look at the tenants that we lost out of our portfolio during the COVID period was, I think it was just an acceleration of the of tenants that were going to go out of business over some period of time anyways, right? It may be accelerating them a couple of years, but that was in, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that was sort of like a cleansing of sort of, of, of tenants or, or, or in uses that probably needed to get moved out of the, out of the retail world anyways. And there was a lot of really successful tenants that went in and backfilled uh, those spaces. So we sort of feel like uh, 
the, the tenant mix that we have today is the best tenant mix that we've probably ever had. That's amazing. No, and and so out of curiosity, you know, if if you could share maybe a, a an example of one of the, the the projects that you guys have done recently or in the past that you know kind of profiles your approach to the process. So maybe you you identified a center and you know maybe it's in a California center that you guys own where you you found it and the, the, what was the existing tenant mix and how did you reposition it so that now you guys have a very high performing uh, property. Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, so we bought a we bought a small center in um, Encinitas, California, on the main retail corridor, which is El Camino Real. It, it is it is the main main and main for you know very high demographics areas, great households, great you know employment areas. It's it's a great part of San Diego County, and we were able to buy the ugliest retail center on the street. So. You know, and and we looked at it in, in the in and we also this is sort of a little bit outside of what we would normally buy too, is it had a second story retail. And you always go, oh my gosh, second story retail, who wants that? But it was but the beautiful part of this center was um it wasn't perpendicular to the road, it was parallel to the road. Um it, so all the shop space had great visibility to the street and the first floor is accessed and the front and the second floor, you drive around behind it to a parking lot. So you still park right in front of it and just walk in. There's no, there's no stairs. And uh, we, we bought that center and we, and we did a very extensive renovation to it. We tore the entire facade off of both the front and the back and the side. So, you know, it was a, it was a true, it wasn't a four-sided extensive renovation but it was an extensive three-side renovation and the front side being two stories and um what we're able to do is is dramatically we opened up some really heavy columns that were in the front we shrank the columns down to get better better visibility from the street into the into the tenant spaces and the other thing that we did was took off some really outdated roof uh treatments that and were able to open up uh, and make much higher sign bandage so that the tenant signs could really be seen much better from the road. And, you know, and then we just, we, we, we hired a great architect and made it what I think is truly now one of the nicest, the best looking retail centers. And then, and then, you know, once we do that, then you got to go through and, you know, and our, it's always our hope that the tenants that are in there that we're you know we come to them and say listen we're going to spend all this money we're going to we're going to make this place look great we put all new signage out we got rid of a pylon sign we put brand new signage on the property it reads great from the street and then you know and then we go to the tenants and we say listen you know we gave you a great new home to be housed at and you're hoping that those tenants are going to pick up the additional sales to to be able to allow you to push rents where you need the rents to be. So it went from being, you know, like very under market rents in place because it was a very unattractive property to being now we're at market levels. And a lot of the tenants, uh, you know, are uh, very appreciative of that. And they're like, great, like my traffic is up dramatically. And when it's time to renew, we can move them to new market rents because their sales are up, um, you know. Uh, that's that's the goal, right? And unfortunately, you can't. Not everyone's gonna 
uh, step up to the to the new opportunity, and then you got to do a little bit of replacement. But like that's a that's a classic value add um, uh, investment for us, and uh, we we love when we can get our hands on properties like that. Yeah. So you start with a foundation of of understanding the market clearly and saying this is the demographics in this area support you know potentially whatever type of retail you think would be appropriate for that particular center and then visibility accessibility for the for the actual center itself and then from there finding and executing on the opportunity and the business plan itself is to 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 renovate and, and update and bring yeah. in you know keep existing tenants if possible but otherwise if they if they can't step up the plate because they just can't support it with their sales then relocating and trying to yeah. see if you could find new tenants yeah and you got to bring in people that can take advantage of the new environment that you've built for them. And, you know, so that's a new deal, but, you know, mm -hmm. we're also, you know, we're also very focused on our existing portfolio and making sure we're reinvesting in our existing portfolio. We own another property in San Diego. We've owned it for, you know, probably going on 10 years now. Um, and it's time, it's time that we go ahead and renovate that center. It was an older property when we bought it. We, we did uh, a light renovation on it uh, and took it from uh, a fairly distressed state to uh, today 100% occupancy. And we've been upgrading the tenant mix. And now, now we're, uh, the area around it has really matured and became much more dense. Uh, there's been a lot of new high density multifamily going in around it, which has been great for the center. And now we're looking at, okay, it's time to go in and do a heavier lift on this one um, and make sure that it, we're always keeping our properties so that they're you know, good looking and relevant in the marketplace. The other thing we've been doing with a lot of our centers is we get onto the bandwagon pretty early with bringing um, electric charging to the stations. And in the beginning, you know, the, the, the pitch from some of the, um, you know, the, the charging stations were, um, you know, you, we're an amenity, you need to pay for us to come in. And, um, uh, you know, this is, you know, but we'll, we'll bring traffic. Uh, that has changed now where a lot of the, a lot of the charging companies will pay a, a, a reasonable rent for the parking lot. And, and, in, in the beginning, when we would go, when I would drive by and I would see other centers that would have charging stations, I was always sort of confused, like, okay, like they, they put this charging station, but it, it could not be more inconvenient from where the charging stations are to where the tenants are. Um, you know, a lot of times it was like in the in the uh, ancillary parking way off in the side or in the back where the where the charging stations would be. We took a different approach. We said, hey, listen, you know, especially with the rapid high-speed charging that, you know, so we're putting fast charging in, right? So, and if, and if you've got an electric car, you know, most of the time when you're fast charging, you're only there for 10 minutes. You're not there for extended periods of time, but it's long enough where you probably want to get out of the car and do something. So we're putting that charging where it's, it's feeding our uh, quick service tenants so that there's, um, you know, it's a it's a nice loop that one we're getting good income off the parking lot for a portion of it. We're being thoughtful not to over you know overdo it, right? Um, but two, it's bringing new new shoppers into the center, um, 
which is which is also positive and it's also driving traffic to the quick serve guns that's amazing yeah and being deliberate and strategic about that is is something that's that's quite impactful so that's awesome that you've been able to accomplish that uh, at various different centers that you guys have so one last question before we up to up to q a we have a good amount of people on the call and i'm sure a lot of them are going to be having questions pertaining to you know the the topic of discussion so uh, where do you see the future of retail going obviously it's it's evolved quite a bit since you've been in the business but as far as trends are concerned what where do you think that we're we're heading uh going forward yeah you know it, i think there's there's still a lot of you know it the one thing about retail retail always evolves right it mm-hmm. it's like you know the 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 need of retail that's why it's it's sort of really fun and that's why it can be a difficult asset class as well is because things continually evolve and change like one of the things we were talking about before you hit the record button was or i think was the sort of the large format sit down restaurants you know i think those continue to have pressure and it's you know most of the pressure on that asset class on that on that type of tenant mix is because of the cost of labor right so i think you're going to continue to see more automation coming into the retailers right so that they can you know get their cost structure more competitive the other big change in retail that we're seeing we definitely have seen is a lot of retailers that started as online only and have migrated into the physical brick and mortar retail that, you know, people say, oh, you're landlords, you're, you know, your guys are profit rent maximizers. And I tell them, you haven't seen anything comp- until you've dealt with Google and Facebook and other, the online, right? The cost of customer capture, it continues to be very high online. And the ownership of that customer relationship, um, the retailers want that direct ownership and they don't want somebody in between them. And they have that direct ownership when they can get to the owning a physical store. And there's been a lot of a lot of analysis and a lot of uh, to, to prove that even their online presence, accelerates when they build a physical store. So you see online like Bonobos and Warby Parkers are classic examples where they've really migrated into the brick and mortar retail and that physical store spurs their online sales as well. So that I think there's gonna be this continued migration to omni-channel, right? Not just one focus and, and the Retailers that started off as strictly brick and mortar, they need to continue to migrate and to expand so that they've got their online presence as well. So it's a it's an entire ecosystem that that the retailers um, uh, need to focus on. So uh, and then the other the other big aspect of that is the ability for people to order online but pick up locally or uh, return locally and then then I think the retailers find that when when the customer comes in and wants to pick it up in person that there's additional selling that takes place or opportunity for education that takes place when they get into the store and we are at the end of the day we are social beings we like to be together and we like that experience to get out of the house and walk around 
And I don't think that changes um, over anytime soon. I think there's always going to be a place for physical retail, but it will constantly evolve. Yeah, and, and that's super insightful what you shared regarding the omni-channel, uh, you know, aspects of, of retail and that, you know, the Warby Parkers, like you had mentioned, have established themselves more in a, you know, physical retail setting for that exact reason, being top of mind. I, I read an article a while ago that, that referenced that, that impulse buys are, I think, 42% of all purchases. So the idea of being top of mind on a regular basis, that's why you see when you see all these online advertisements on your cell phone they just keep popping up popping up popping up and after a while you're like oh you know what maybe i'll take a stab at it and buy it you know but if yeah. you have the 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 omni channel where it's like i see it on my phone online and then i go into the store and then they have these technologies now that can track where your phone's been so they can you know incorporate all that into the selling process it becomes extremely powerful and impactful so yeah uh, and, and one of the things we do as a landlord that's maybe a little bit unique is Mm -hmm. We we actually have uh, a third party that we contract with. So any tenant that comes into our center, we don't need to do it necessarily for the nationals, but any any of the, of the smaller regional or independents, we actually go through and we do search engine optimization for them for them specifically at our center. So if you are at one of our, if you're in the city of Poway and you put in pizza near me, we make sure that our tenant and our center is optimized to come up first. So, you know, we're, we're trying to think through like what best practices can we bring as a landlord and, and use sort of the scale of our, of, of, of our company's resources to help deliver best practices to all of our tenants. Because once again, nobody wants to see these tenants more successful than we want to see them, right? We want them to be successful we want them to have great sales. We want them to renew. We, you know, we're not, you know, we don't want downtime on vacancy and releasing costs. So, uh, you know, a successful tenant is really, uh, you know, our end goal. And whatever we can do to achieve that, we're going to work on. That's awesome. Uh, great advice. So what we'll go ahead and do now is we'll open it up to Q&A. So th for those of you guys who are on the Zoom call, feel free to type away in the chat box. Along with that, for those of you guys who are watching this live, uh, feel free to type away as well, and we'll get your questions answered. In the meantime, Alex, do you do you have a insight that you wish, or maybe a you know wish the question that I wish you you wish I would have asked you that that you think is kind of relevant to the topic of discussion? Um, you know, I. I... Now, not, nothing that's jumped out of my head right right off the bat. No worries. Yeah, but I mean, we could talk a little bit about the investment sales market right now, which has been kind of uh, a very interesting period. Oh yeah, and we'll we'll jump to that right now. Jesse had a, had a quick question. I'll go ahead and get his answered, and then we'll jump into that question shortly. So uh, Jesse says, "You mentioned that sometimes you will help." the tenant by altering the lease terms. Do you ever offer social media help for better exposure as a way to increase their income? Seems like that can be a hurdle for some of the smaller businesses that don't have a dedicated marketing team. Would be a game changer for some of them if they could get help in this area. Yeah, yeah. So one thing we do, like we just talked about the search engine optimization, right? So so that helps. Uh, we, we definitely have... Uh, you know, the property level website that um, that we, we keep up to date. We make sure that, you know, everybody's properly listed and all the hours are there. 
And then on top of that, we have uh, social media. We typically use Facebook. So we'll build a Facebook page on the center as well. And then we'll really, you know, work with the tenants and, and give them access so that they can be posting not only to their own Facebook, but then they, that, that can also feed to the property's Facebook page. But at the, you know, and at, so, you know, we give them those tools. At, at the end of the day, you know, we, we need the tenants um, to take responsibility and, uh, you know, to, to grab those reins and, and, uh, and move forward with it on their own. And the good tenants do it, right? You know, the really good tenants are all over their social media, um, you know, and, uh, but, you know, we, we will bring in uh, a consultant to the centers and we'll talk to the independent tenants about what they could be doing to improve their social media uh, presence. You know, that was a probably uh, a more educational discussion seven, eight years ago, you know, but now most tenants, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're right with us. They're, they're there. Great answer. So Alex has a question. He asks, I'm starting, uh, his question is I'm starting out and I'm in the position Alex was being new to, to my industry in commercial lending. I'm calling commercial brokers and trying to help them find financing. We have aggressively competitive rates. But most of them see that I'm new and quickly lose interest. How do I convey to them that our lending rates are better than than almost every anyone you'll find? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's you know it's promoting those successes, right? It's it's um, it you know it's it's that establishment. One, I always tell our people get out, you know, make sure you're out of the office, right? Go to the industry event, especially if you're new. You want to make sure you're joining the industry association. So if you're Want to go out to a retail? It's ICSC, it's NAIOP, right? It's it's BOMA. You want to you want to join the industry events where other people are at uh, and, and and actually show up to them in purpose in, in person and make those personal connections. But then you know it's fostering that that uh, communication network that you've got to build, and it's promoting the deals that are get done and the success of it. Um, and you know, and it's it's a process, right, to build your reputation and to be out um, into the marketplace. So you know, nothing. It's it's just repetitive. It's just being yeah. out and you know, telling the story again and again and again. Yeah, and and then I when I first started on the brokerage side, I mean, facing similar challenges as far as conveying the value you can provide as a newer broker agent or whatever. I mean, leaning on the successes of people that are on your team is kind of a good way to start. I mean, you don't necessarily have the experience. Maybe you don't have the success to show for it, but maybe your team members do or your 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 leader in whatever company you're in does. So that could be a value um, to share as well. So yeah. that would be. That's good advice. Yeah. All right. So one question that we wanted to kind of touch on, as you had mentioned, was related to the investment sales landscape right now. I mean, we kind of are in a an interesting landscape to say the least. I mean, largest rate hike in the last, I think, ever that we've experienced. And so there is kind of a stagnation in, in, in transaction volume right now. I guess, how have you experienced uh, the current, let's say, 12 to 18 month uh, yeah. timeline? Yeah. So I think one of the most important things um, is having a sense of patience in this industry and um, in, 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 in being able to say, hey, there's a period of time when maybe the best 
thing to do is not to do anything, right? And it's it's to sit out the in, in into the market and wait for a little bit better clarity, especially when you're in one of these very, very strong transitional periods where like what we've gone through has been unprecedented, the amount of interest rate hikes. And the there's a, a high expectation that there will be adjustments, right? That will be caused by interest rates going up, right? And it's interest rates go up, uh, obviously, it puts pressure on on the leveraged returns. We're in a leveraged industry, um, but it all, the other thing it does is puts you know it cramps down availability of capital, right? And it's pretty clear that that will have negative effects on value over some period of time if it stays long enough. It's always a waiting game, though, right? It's always you know how long does it take before you really see the effects of these changes. When we came out of the 2008, the Great Recession, you know, the buying opportunity did not, in the commercial real estate space, did not really start presenting itself until 2010, um, and 11, and 12. That's when the impact of this comes. And I think there's this, you, you know, like if, if you're prone to being real active and wanting to get stuff done, you know, the, the biggest thing you got to do is convince yourself that. You know, it, you know, don't don't go too quickly on this. You know, change takes a while to move through the system. It takes a while for any seller is going to want to sell at yesterday's prices. Doesn't want to adjust. Um, and and there are times when there are just sort of flash issues in the marketplace, and maybe the sellers can wait through that period of time, and there is very little transaction that changes. And then there's other things when there's much more structural changes that come through. And you know, my my sense is you want to you want to wait for it to really manifest itself versus um, you know going a little too quick. And it is so much easier to make money in this industry when you buy at a good value, right? You know, like there's this classic saying, you know, the money is made on the buy side. And you know, well, we're a super long-term holder these days, so you know, we're not necessarily always trying to time it perfectly on you know the bottom of to, to be able to buy. But it is clear that you know it's it's very hard to recover from buying at the top of the market, especially if you're in a market that's distorted, like we were in this distortion with zero interest rates. Um, Somebody once told me um, uh, sometimes when something grows like a weed, it turns out it was a weed. Um, and you know, and I think that there was a lot of valuations over the last couple couple of years ago that were very weed-like that were distorted just because you know they were distorted because of the super low interest rates and the wild availability of capital. And you know, in the financial engineering that takes place when you get these distortions in in interest rates, um, so you know, so so having uh, it, 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 the other thing that I think is really important for the long term is if you're starting to get your return by a bunch of financial engineering, I think that's super dangerous, right? That that is only going to work with if you can get through that whole transaction within this window of time 
before you get a sort of a correction in the marketplace. And if 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 your deal takes you know full leverage on the senior and a bunch of mezzanine and financing and you know and and a bunch of financial engineering to make it work, I would really think long and hard about you know you know can you get through that transaction before things sort of revert back to the mean. And once you get into any type of pullback into the capital markets, which we're in now, you're seeing like the effects of that, right? So the classic is, you know, people that were out buying, you know, multifamily debt with 2% interest only debt at full capitalization, right? Now they're having to roll that stuff over at five and a half, six percent debt with, with amortization. And if they haven't had significant rent growth in that period of time, that's a real painful period to be in. So just if you're engineering the returns, you got to know that you're, you, you've got a unique bet going that you need to get all the way through that bet um, before things turn on you. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I can't tell you how many different OMs I was reading for these different products, in particular multifamily, where these assumptions were outrageous and there's, they're assuming a, entry cap of seven and their exit is four and a half, five percent. You know, they're assuming from a 10 year, 10 year whole period or whatever else. And and the the business plan that they formulated was, oh, we're going to go in and renovate all these units and we're going to raise rents by three, 30 or 40 percent, which, you know, for a period of time, I mean, I guess you could you could justify, but obviously in this environment it's 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 slowly shifting. So to your yeah. point, I, I'm interested to see ha what happens as more of this debt starts to mature, because a lot of these 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 syndicators in particular, the ones who have been raising money to buy these larger assets that maybe aren't necessarily on the institutional level, um, they have notes that are coming due, like construction that notes that are turning perm, and I don't know yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah, they're going to need they're going to need some rescue capital. And yeah. the other thing, like that, for anybody that's new in the industry, you know, there there is a world of difference. From having your cap rate, on, if you if you bought at a four cap and having it reset to a four and a half cap, versus if you're buying an asset at a six and a half cap and it's adjusting to a seven, you know that that it's still only a half a point increase, but that half a point cap rate is an entirely different oh you know a different hit when you're at a, such a low cap rate. Um, so you know you, you've got to be what once cap rates get really compressed and you know for for us you know as a been in this business for a long time you know there's you know we just get to the point where we go it's just time for us to put our pencils down and work on something else we have enough other strategies going on where if you know once if, if things get really priced to perfection um you know be, you know like before the ukraine war hit was a classic example right i mean Cap rates were at an all-time low. Rents were at an all-time high. Occupancies were all-time high. Debt was an all-time cheap rate. And then when the Ukraine war hit, you know, like we've sat there and went, well, you know, everything that's in the market is priced that everything remains perfect in the market, right? And it not only remains perfect, but continues to get better. And there is this now this huge negative thing that's unfolding in Europe. And, you know, we're like, you know, I don't know exactly where that war goes, but I know that it will not improve any of these fact patterns of which things were priced at before. 
And, you know, that's like a classic example for us where we go, you know, let's put our pencils down. Let's stop looking at deals for a while and let's see what unfolds due to these big macro events. And I would tell people also that are new to the industry, you know, the, the macro events do come down to the micro, right? It, it, they do impact big capital flows, impacts your local deal. It may not impact it next week, but it is definitely going to impact it. So you get to an event where like Silicon Valley Bank blows up and First Republic, you know, it's, it takes a while before that, potentially before that really filters through all the, all the other banks as, a, as an example, but it, it, well, that one actually filtered through pretty quick, right? Because the regulators realized that they had a risk that they hadn't really properly vetted, right? So it pretty quick went from those two banks failing to the regulators telling all the other regional banks, you're gonna pull back, right? You're like, we're gonna put the brakes on you guys. Um, so keep an eye for the for the big events as well as what's going on in your local market. Some great advice, really. So uh, we're running close to the hour, so I want to be respectful of everyone's time. I uh, uh, wanted to say, first off, thank you so much for stopping by, Alex. We do greatly appreciate your time and, and all the insights you provided. I got a lot of uh, from the discussion. I'm sure a lot of the people that, that, was, that were listening in did as well, and this will be available on YouTube and and podcast format as well. So those, so that we can listen to this in perpetuity. So if people want to learn more about, you know, projects you guys are working on, you know, uh, the, the different things that are related to the industry that you're providing, whether blog posts or any other, uh, other things that you guys are pushing out on LinkedIn and other platforms, what, how's, what's the best way for them to be able to, be able to, be able to reach out? Yeah, you can just email us, you know, uh, get on our website and there are information's on there. Feel free to call us or email whoever on our team. And we're always happy to talk to people. So, you know, we're big networkers. That's amazing. And and you guys are affiliated in other organizations around the country. You mentioned ICSC, you mentioned a few other of these organizations. Do you guys regularly attend those types of events as well? I'm sure there's a lot of people on the call that that are members and I'm sure they'd love to connect at some point at future conferences yeah, and such. Yeah, 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 yeah. ULI, ICSC, NAIOP. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. And hey, we'll, we'll, for, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And what we'll go ahead and do as well is we'll include all the, the, the links for your website, LinkedIn, everything in the show notes as well. So if you guys are watching this on YouTube, go ahead and in the description, you can access it. And if you guys are listening to this in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, again, you'll be able to access all that information down below. So Alex, thank, thank you again so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. For those of you guys who are tuning in, we do this every other week. So we invite speakers uh, to talk about a variety of different commercial real estate topics, continue to come back, continue to engage. And we look forward to seeing you all next time. Great. All right. Take care, everybody. See you guys.